Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um, my name is Clancy Miller, and I am guest hosting for Radio Cherry Bomb at the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. Um, my name, again, is Clancy. I am an author, cookbook author, and writer. I'm the author of Cooking Solo, The Joy of Cooking for Yourself. And I am absolutely delighted to be joined here by Jessica B- Jessica Harris and, and Sarah B. Franklin. Today we're discussing, we actually are kind of continuing our conversation that we started last night about the Edna Lewis effect. Uh, but before we get started, let me give you a brief introduction. According to Heritage Radio Network, there's perhaps no greater expert on the food and foodways of the African diaspora than Dr. Jessica B. Harris. She is the author of 12 critically acclaimed cookbooks documenting the food and foodways of the African diaspora. I am going to... Abridge, please. Yes, that's going to be the abridged bio. Um, It's also my pleasure to be here with Sarah B. Franklin, who is a writer, a teacher, and the editor of the book that we're going to be discussing. The, um, the book is Edna Lewis, At the Table with an American Original. And I'm really happy that we can continue the conversation that we started last night. Um, we, there was a beautiful dinner here as part of the Charleston Wine and Food Festival at the Alhambra Hall. And a magnificent meal. Some of the chefs who cooked were Mashama Bailey, Vivian Howard, um, Chef J.J. Johnson, uh, Andrea Upchurch, Frank Lee, and it was a stunning meal, all cooked under the influence of Edna Lewis. And afterwards, we had this great conversation, brief conversation, about Edna Lewis. And so I want to ask you, I'll start with you, Sarah. Where did you first get the idea to create this anthology about Edna Lewis? Yeah, I'll tell a slightly different version than I told last night, since we have a smaller group here. So it was here in Charleston, almost three years ago now. I was sitting in the living room of Ms. Natalie Dupree, um, and I was called to her house. Natalie is a, a really important figure in um, the new Southern, what's sort of called the new Southern movement. I had been here in Charleston speaking about Judith Jones, who was Edna Lewis's editor, and also Julia Child's editor, and many other cookbook authors' editors. Um, and I was here in Charleston talking about Judith Jones and Edna Lewis and their relationship. Mm-hmm. And Natalie had caught wind of that talk and invited me to her house. I'd never met her. And she sort of cornered me, and within a few minutes she said, so are you going to do a book? And I sort of quaked with fear and said, I, I don't think I can. <laughs> I don't know if I'm qualified. I, don't, I think I'm too young. I don't think I'm the right person to do this book. And by the end of an hour-long conversation, we had this idea of, well, what if it's many people's books that's sort of a curated collection but allows for many of the people who have things to say about Anna Lewis to say them and to sort of shed their own light on what she means, continues to mean, has meant to people in different realms, in cooking, in writing, um, but also across gender, place, race, creed. Um, And that was the genesis for the book. And so I just kind of started cold calling people who had spoken about Edna or had um, written about Miss Lewis in some little way and I thought might have more to say. And everyone said yes. I was sort of stunned. Not a single person said, I don't want to be a part of that. Most everyone said, there hasn't been a book on Miss Lewis. It's high time. 
let's make this happen. And so it was this sort of collaborative labor of love that came to very came together quite quickly. Um, and here it is being published next month. It's a brilliant on, book. On Miss Edna's birthday. On exactly. Ms. Edna's birthday, that's right. April thirteenth. So good. Um, where do you see, Jessica, where do you see Edna Lewis's legacy most today in the culinary world? Uh, the word legacy may be problematic, but I think okay. that she's very, very much a precursor of our current farm-to-table, of our current seasonal, of our current by local of all of those things because I think those are things that were very, very important to her. Mm -hmm. Now I say I don't necessarily call it legacy because I'm not sure that everybody that is doing this is doing this because of Miss Edna. Mm. But she was the forerunner. She was in the avant-garde. She was that person really almost at the tip there. And I think that that's something that's very, very important about her as an individual, and I actually met her. I can't. I knew her. I can't say I knew her well, but I think that that's very, very important part of the sum of various things that she was. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, in terms of the impact, Sarah, of Edna Lewis's work, her cultural impact. What did you discover? What was new for you as you worked on this book? What discoveries did you make about her work? What what surprises were there? Well, I think if you think about how long Ms. Lewis was cooking professionally, you're talking about a career in which she started in a restaurant in 1949 and was working professionally almost up until she died in some capacity in 2006. That is an astonishingly long professional cooking career. Mm-hmm. Um, some was in restaurants, some was as a caterer. You know, there was a lot of bouncing around, but I'm amazed at the magnitude of her breadth in terms of geography, in terms of being able to bridge rural and urban, um, and being able to speak to multiple audiences across time. I don't know that I can think of anyone contemporary who's been able to resonate with so many different kinds of audiences and for such a long time, and that she's finding new audiences now posthumously is kind of remarkable because the food world is is saturated right now and yet she's poking through with a kind of brightness mm-hmm. and magnetism um, I think it's just there's a conversation that's sort of just beginning about her it's nowhere near ending this is not a frozen and amber woman this is this is a memory that is living and evolving right now um, and I don't I think she's singular in that way I don't know that I can think of anyone who had a career putting food on a table but also in print mm-hmm. in a way that can carry forward with as much longevity um, I just I think that's uh, she has no equal in that way so she's remarkable and just to add to that not only that but as a woman and as a woman of color so absolutely those are two things also because I mean you may have you may be able to come up with a chef who has done that, who's had a 50-year career. I mean, Bocuse, you can talk about Bocuse who just died. Right. But the idea that this is a woman, this is a woman of color, this is a woman of color who is cooking from her heritage mm-hmm. as opposed to from a codified system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole nother thing that, that's another sort of valence to the wonder that was Miss Edna. Yeah. 
I think too one of the um, one of the things that I've found really interesting is that by being really specific her work became really really resonant mm -hmm. so rather than trying to please sort of a broad swath by being general she got really close she zoomed in really close and by by showing detail she spoke to more people and I think that's a lesson in storytelling mm -hmm. I think it's a it's a cautionary tale maybe to people in lots of artistic forms to not try to please too many people at once but to speak what you have and to know that, that the closer you can get the better it's going to to do as a story mm -hmm. you know that's it's sort of it's a radio mantra get close and then get closer with your microphone but that's true with any storytelling it's true with cooking well it's also that song you can't please everyone so you got right. to please yourself right exactly and she did that exactly can you walk us through the the book and how it's put together and your role as editor and kind of um maybe now you've had enough even though the book is just about to come out can you walk us through what your responses have been to each essay sure um so the book was envisioned in three parts so it's people that knew ms lewis personally and had something to say about an experience of her in the flesh it's people that knew her only on paper which are, is a lot of us myself included um and, and then it was people that have made a career uh, in kitchens, sort of being influenced by her, whether it was in person or in print or both. Um, and then I wanted to make sure I had writer-writers, I wanted to make sure I had chefs, and I wanted scholars, because I wanted to make sure that there was an underpinning of really sort of heavy-hitting research that could help contextualize her um, in the scope of history, in black history, in women's history, in southern history, in food history. Um, and so those were sort of the thoughts behind when I went searching for who was going to speak to this book. Um, you know, writer-writers often, not always, but often come with a strong-headed idea of what they want to do. And that was, by and large, my experience when I asked writers to talk about their experience of, of Miss Lewis and how she influenced them. Most of them were pretty primed. Mm -hmm. um, working with chefs is really different because most of them aren't writers by trade. Um, so they're prepared to describe her influence on their cooking career, but drawing out an essay was a really collaborative effort that was much more like maybe co-writing a cookbook, sort sure. of um, prompting with questions to, to draw out an essay, to draw out a story. Um, and then the scholars that contributed all went and did original research for these pieces. So none of, no one had published, no one that contributed to this book had published on Miss Lewis in an academic forum. They all drew up original pieces, went to the archives and, and did their homework. Um, and so editing those three kinds of essays was really different because they all sort of demand a different set of uh, editorial eyes. And then to put the essays into conversation together, what we wanted to make sure we didn't do was put scholars in one corner, chefs in one corner, and writers in another, mm -hmm. but to think more about sort of a trajectory of historical time. Um, and also to sort of get us from Ms. Lewis's past all the way up to future. We wanted to make sure that the book ended in the future in the sort of unfolding future. Sure, how did, so you're also an oral historian. How did your, how does your expertise in oral history come into play in putting this book together? I think primarily, well, the book was born out of, of an oral history that I did with Judith Jones. So that's, you know, the genesis of the project was a long, six month long interview, series of interviews. Um, 
the only oral history I performed for this book was an interview with Ms. Natalie Dupree. But the questions that I posed to each of the contributors were the kind of questions I would pose in an interview. In, in some ways, they were sort of evoking a long response. Um, so there was a way in which I wanted to sort of ask open-ended questions of each of these contributors, and each of their essays are responses to questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, lots of them raise their own questions. So it's sort of, I see the book as the beginning of a conversation that I'm hoping is going to unfold into something that maybe looks like an Edna effect of its own, you know, that really invites in more conversation, more events, more cooks to sort of be going to those books, going to her prose, and thinking about what she meant, what she means, what she will mean. I'm all for an Edna Lewis conference. Yes. I'm all for it. Um, Jessica, last night you said um, three things that many people, you knew Edna Lewis and interacted with her on more than one occasion, and I was just hoping you could repeat the three things lesser-known things about Edna Lewis. (laughs) Um, I think one had to do with the original title. No, it was the original title of uh, Country Cooking, I think. Exactly. And it was called Freetown Country Cooking because I think the thing that was her, if you will, culinary North Star, her culinary home port was Freetown, Virginia which is where she was from and I think the whole notion of the free towns is something unique and something that informs her work in ways that people don't necessarily know because the free towns were formed by the newly emancipated formerly enslaved Africans and their descendants post-emancipation and so to have been brought up and to have grown up in a free town meant a whole nother way of thinking about oneself, about one's past, about one's future, about one's ultimate legacy. And so I think that's a very important part of who she was. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the first thing. And I remember the third. I'm not sure that I remember the second thing from last night. So the third thing was, um, well, the second thing may have been that it was Virginia cooking. And Virginia yes. cooking is its own very specific thing. I mean, my mm-hmm. mother's people were from Roanoke, which is not necessarily, it wasn't a free town, but it's, it's, it's Virginia. It's a section of Virginia. It's an area of Virginia. And so there were a lot of things in that particular book that were familiar and that were not only just familiar, but that were, you know, familiar. The etymology comes from the same root as family. Mm-hmm so that were family recipes as well, so that there was a connection there, a a literal sort of gustatory, a taste connection. There were some things that were similar, and I actually have been to eat Miss Edna's food with my mother, Mm -hmm. so that that was yet another part of that connection. But the third thing was, um, and and Natalie Dupree would would know this, because Natalie and I were both in Les Dames d'Escoffier when uh, Miss Edna was made a grand dame. And um, it was my great honor to walk her up to the podium. And when she put her arm on mine, it was like, oh my God. Because her skin, her color, the 
flexibility of her hand and everything else was exactly my paternal grandmother's. And so I just looked at that and thought, wow, <laughs> oh, wow. And there's a fourth thing to add, which may have been the second thing that I talked about last night, was um, I met her eons ago in San Francisco. We were both invited out to a conference at the California Academy of Sciences, which um, had been called by a lady named Daphne Durvin. And at that point in her life, Miss Edna was not flying. She later flew, but at that point she was only taking the train. And she, um, she came out, she'd taken the train from New York. She sat, she gave her speech, gave her presentation. It was a day-long conference on food. And at some point got a notice about something that had gone wrong with her family and literally spent one night, possibly two in San Francisco, turned around and took the train back to the East Coast. And so that she was formidable in that sense, Mm -hmm. because at that point she was probably younger than I am now, but she was not a young woman. Right. And just that kind of commitment, Mm -hmm. and as a friend of mine would say, commitment to the commitment, she came, she did everything, but she was committed to her family. And she returned to deal with whatever that was. So that was something else that I remembered about her. But I vividly remember sitting in, in a hotel in San Francisco, mm-hmm. literally on the side of her chair on the floor and wow. looking up to her and listening to her. Wow, that's amazing. Um, in terms of research, Sarah, did you... Um, did you encounter members of Edna Lewis's family? What was your research process like? Did you revisit her cookbooks in the kitchen? What can you walk us through the yeah. kind of the revisiting the her cookbooks, of course? And there, um, there are four of them, and they're each so different from one another, mm-hmm. um, which is something that comes up in a lot of the essays in this book. That I think people are a little mystified by. Uh, the difference in tone in each of them. Each either had a co-author um, or a ghostwriter, mm-hmm. each of whom was white, which I think is a really important thing, is that we have very few examples of an unfiltered voice of Ms. Lewis. And of course, that's true for published authors anywhere, right? You have an editor and there's sort of someone combing through your prose. Um, but to have a level of co-authorship where someone is always mediating your words, I think a lot of people, myself included, are really hungry for more unmediated words. Um, and the only, the only version that was ever published was her, uh, her essay, What is Southern?, which was published posthumously in Gourmet Magazine in 2008, which was a handwritten essay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's remarkable. And I think it's remarkably different than her cookbooks. It is fierce, and, and it is fast, and it is lyrical, and it is poetic, um, and it puts was actually edited by Jane Lear, wasn't it? It was totally, it was printed unedited. Yeah, yeah, but, but Jane, Jane Lear, Lear was the editor of Note yes. for it. Yes, yeah. and wrote for the book as well, yeah. and writes about yeah. acquiring yeah. that. Um, so I think there is this sense that we knew Miss Lewis's words as they were published, and some people were lucky enough to know her food as it was cooked in restaurants mm-hmm. or at parties, but f- relatively few people that are alive now knew her. 
And I think there is a little bit of a sense of um, how will we, how will we, can we get to her in a way that can help answer some questions. She does not have an archive that is publicly available. Mm-hmm. The papers that she has are scattered through a number of people and have not been made accessible. And so there is this sense of um, how do you talk about a person, how do you historically position someone who you don't have a kind of factual record in the conventional sense around, which is often a question with women mm-hmm. and with people of color, right? Mm-hmm. The, that there tend not to be those records. Um, and food, because it's ephemeral. We don't have the food to go back to. The food itself is gone. Freetown is not there anymore. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of writing around, which makes kind of research in the conventional sense difficult to do. Um, two of Miss Lewis's family members wrote the afterword for the book. Mm-hmm. So her sister, Ruth Lewis Smith, wrote one part, um, and her niece, Nina Williams Mbege, who typed up the manuscript for The Taste of Country Cooking, uh, wrote another. Um, and it was r- remarkable to have their voices as a sort of counter to some of the popular narratives mm-hmm. around Miss Lewis, which are um, very nostalgic, very gentle. Um, and there was, a, there was a lot of laughter on the phone when we did those interviews around. That wasn't what she was like. Um, her her right. niece said to me at one point, she was a fast-talking woman who was still working in kitchens at 75. And when she told you to hush, you hushed. And she was pulling up the t- uh, chair to th- watch the evening news every night, deeply politicized well into her life, that there was a sort of um, private Miss Lewis that was not made visible to the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that we're just beginning to understand that, that there is a lot more to this woman and there are very few people who have access to those stories and they need to be called upon. Well, some of them were so amazing because she she used to cook at the Ninth Avenue Street Fair mm-hmm. in New York City, which was a famous street fair that went on for years and she would be there. She would be there. She had been, I think, a dressmaker at some yes. point and she was always dressed in... Um, what they would call in West Africa wax. Mm-hmm. So she mm-hmm. was always wearing that kind of dashiki-esque fabric. That she made that herself. That she made herself, absolutely. And, um, and she volunteered, if I am not mistaken, at the Museum of Natural History in New York. She was staff time, Okay, she was yeah. staff, because my mother knew her from there as well, because yeah. my mother volunteered there. But so there were all of these other aspects to her. And I believe, I'm not sure, and you can correct me on this, that she had been a member of the Communist Party. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so that was very much a part of what defined her and what defined her views about race as well. So that all of those things are things that people don't necessarily factor in, but that are pieces that are very real and large, if you will, building blocks in the who she was. Right. It's fascinating. One of the things I enjoyed um, about the essays, I love Francis Lamb's piece talking about how this is dovetailing on what you're saying. How so many people write about Edna Lewis and it just sounds like, oh, she was a nice old lady. And so it's nice to peel back the layers through these different essays and perspectives. I'd like to know from both of you, why, why do you think now is an especially important time to, or do you think now is an especially important, important time to engage with Edna Lewis's work? Yes. Okay. I mean, I, 
I don't know that there was ever an unimportant time to engage with it, but... And why? Like, why is well, you know, now? Given what's time. happened politically in the kind of capital P politics sense in this country in the last couple of years, I think anyone that can help um, open doors and ask really troubling, difficult questions, but also um, in a way that invites communion rather than immediately setting up walls is needed. And we're turning back to some things, in this case, books that are 40 plus years old, that were always there, that always had something to say, but are being read in a different way, I think, now. Um, We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are, people of color in restaurants, and how they're not talked about, though of course they are present and have always been present, many of whom don't have legal status. We're talking about who's paid a living wage. We're talking about who can retire comfortably. Um, You know, we're talking about changes in tax codes in which freelancers may not be able to freelance in the way that they always have with a woman who freelanced for most of her life. So there are all these ways in which she's deeply, deeply relevant. And I think that some of her takes on these things were always there, but they're being interpreted in a 2018 lens, through a 2018 lens right now. And that's shedding a different light on what she has to offer, I think, than it did 30, 40 years ago. I'd love to hear your take, Dr. Harris. Oh, yeah. Um, Well, I mean, I think the thing that's so current is that she was who she was, that she, you know, was if you will, a colossus who bestrode many things. She was at the same time that nice little old lady, but that not nice little old lady, simultaneously. Um, She was that person who could take on things. And she was equally that person that in her own way probably Judith Jones created Mm. in another kind of way. Because she um, she became so important. She was Edna Lewis. And who that was changed and transformed as she wrote, Absolutely. as she grew, as she lived, and continued to transform until her death, and now beyond. Right. Because I think that, you know, who she was when she started and who she was when she was cooking at Cafe Nicholson. It was a very different Edna Lewis from that uber icon that we think of now. You know, her profile, pretty much most people involved in food can conjure up mentally. I mean, that picture, that image, that photograph, you see her. You see her and you see her and know her and understand something about her. But I think all of those things are things that are, in some ways, recent accretations to Edna Lewis. Who she was and who she was before she was. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, give us a gamut that was Edna Lewis, and that's a whole other story. Right. And yet we have a moment like the Top Chef episode a year ago in which half of the contestants didn't know who she was, admitted they didn't know who she was when they were asked to cook by her inspiration. And so we have a culture that's embracing food well, sort of at its center, and yet a lot of the kind of historical underpinnings are being missed. And, and so I think there's, 
there is an honoring and a reassessing, but there's also a new introduction, well, and those are happening simultaneously. those same people might not have known. They might have known Escoffier. They might not. I mean, we have to deal with the fact that we're dealing with a general public that is, you should pardon my being the school teacher that I am, relatively illiterate about most things. Mm. Um, and, you know, are in a field but don't necessarily know the background, know even how they got there, why they got there, or who were the people upon whose shoulders they stand. Mm -hmm. And um, and that's part of that. Uh, so hopefully those people that were watching that episode now know who she was. Well, apparently, because her book shot to the top of the well, bestseller list the so day after. So somebody went out to buy it. Right. Good. Which is excellent. Dr. Harris, I'd like for you to speak a little bit more about maybe the rarity or the the role of Judith Jones or the, the access that Edna Lewis was given. I, I'm picking up on what you said in terms of Judith Jones kind of creating a certain platform for her or access and how I feel like that's part of well, Edna I mean, Lewis's I think, story. I think Judith Jones was an extraordinary editor. I mm -hmm. met her once. Mm -hmm. um, we actually talked about doing a book together, but it was not to be because mm -hmm. at one point, and I think this was in the 80s or 90s, she was doing a series of books that were to be about various aspects of American cooking. The Knopf Cooks American the Knopf, series. Exactly. And one of Miss Lewis's books was a part of that. I don't remember which one. Uh, uh, In Pursuit of Flavor would have been the only one that fit into that. Possibly. Possibly. But it was very much a consideration. Um, that's the series that brought Joe Nathan to fame. Right. Mm -hmm. That's the series that brought a lot of people to fame. And so as a result of that, um, Judith Jones sort of had a position as a, if not kingmaker, queenmaker. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And so the fact that Edna was, you know, had the laying on of hands meant a great deal. Mm -hmm. It meant a great deal in terms of publisher. Knopf was, is, and probably in terms of book publishing, will be not necessarily world without end, but for a while, the, the summum of aspiration. Um, and with that, I need to probably back up, because summum of aspiration in some manners, and certainly when Judith Jones was editing there. Um, with all of that, though, um, this whole kind of who you are, who you become because of who has published you, who has edited you, mm -hmm. who all of those things and they're very much a part of it and it's almost it's almost like trying to read Sanskrit because unless you are in that world you don't necessarily know the paths but that kind of star quality that Judith Jones could just put on it by doing it I mean mm -hmm. anyone who's seen that film uh what is it, Julie and Julia? Yes. Okay, the the whole idea of, oh my God, oh my God, Judith Jones is coming. Judith, right. Yeah. That thing was real. Mm, okay. And it was real to anyone who lived in that world at that time. And that was a whole kind of importance of editor that, who's the food editor you would think now? Francis Lamb? Oh. That, uh, <laughs> 
that moment is gone. I don't know that I, well, any editor go. is there ever going to have that I mean, kind of I mean, I think that, that may again. be no longer there. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's Media the point. Media has changed. Books well, were no. at one oh, time I mean, the honey, thing. The, the epigraph to my new book is Heraclitus. You can't step twice in the same mm-hmm. river. It's mm-hmm. always gone. Mm-hmm. Whether or not you want it to go, it mm-hmm. goes. Um, so I think that that whole thing is part of this, is part of the Edna effect. Had Edna been published by, you know, somewhere else, somebody else, there's no way to know. Right. So that's part of it. And I think that that's, it's, it bears noting. Mm-hmm. It doesn't diminish who she was because she was extraordinary. Of course. But it's a nuance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I appreciate your saying that because it, that's a, an important part of the story and created part of the development of that. Well, I mean, the thing that people talk about today is access. Mm-hmm. Right, and absolutely. being edited by Judith Jones gave Granted you access. You access. Absolutely. Right. It's huge. So it was absolutely huge. Right. Okay. It, it was it was access to the world of publishing, and it was also access to the peers within that world. Mm-hmm. And so there was also a network that was... I love that you used the phrase queen maker. It was on the tip of my tongue as well. But I, these women were then connected to one another. Absolutely. And I think it cannot be overemphasized how much they built their careers on the backs of one another. Mm-hmm. And they knew each other. I mean, mm-hmm. back Ex- in those days, I mean... And I'm sure that Julian knew Miss Edna. I'm Absolutely. Really, yeah. And Marion Cunningham well, no, 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 knew no. Miss I mean, Edna. And I knew both of them. Um, so the trick becomes, in that sense, how it works and how in it you are. I remember sitting in Julia's kitchen in Cambridge and talking with her about... Um, I don't remember which one of the TV shows she was doing, but she wanted a black woman chef. And she didn't know one. Hmm. Hmm. And I remember saying Leah Chase. And I very vividly remember sitting in that kitchen that's now in the Smithsonian. And I've only been in her kitchen once or twice, so it's not like I was there all the time. Right. But, and calling Leah Chase. Wow. And putting them together. And they did a show together. Wow. And I don't know that they got each other Mm. but they respected each other and I think that's part of that whole sisterhood that culinary sisterhood that came out of those days which was kind of extraordinary I think it was extraordinary and it was small too you know there wasn't a lot of room for cattiness if there were 15-20 people Yes, there was. <laughs> I was oh, about to say, there's yes, always there a backstory. Oh, yeah. Well, there's always, always a backstory. <laughs> but I think that um, I think that people were aware of kinship mm. or at least possibility. And I mean, I think one of the things that was also extraordinary, certainly about both of those ladies, Mrs. Chase and Ms. Edna, was that Unlike some of the other ladies who had backstops, if you will, trust funds, husbands who had money, <laughs> or all of that, those ladies did it solo. So they weren't just Ginger Rogers backwards and in high heels. 
as opposed to Fred Astaire, but they were backwards in high heels without a safety net. Mm-hmm. And that was extraordinary. It was the difference between Miss Edna and Julia. Oh, sure. Right. Absolutely. And it was the difference between Miss Edna and any number of other folks. And that's important, too. Absolutely. And it's one of, I have this bugaboo about Ms. Edna Lewis being called the Julia Child of Southern Pooks. I don't think that's a fair metaphor for a number of reasons. But one was Julia Child was writing about a culture that was not her own. She got famous translating something. Ms. Edna Lewis got famous telling her story. There's a big difference there's a Huge. big difference in what you're putting forth to the public and what you're risking between those two things. Well, th- there's a big difference of the part of you that it takes. Right. You know, what it takes out of you to tell your story. It's very different from what it takes out of you to tell somebody else's story. But then that becomes problematic because why not? Why not tell somebody else's story? How can you do that? So I think that the thing is really the what it costs to tell your story as opposed to the what it costs to tell somebody else's. It doesn't cost as much to tell somebody else's story, but what it costs to be honest and forthright and absolute and unwavering about your own story is important. Absolutely. Which kind of leads me to a question. I think we're getting towards the end of our show, but I am interested in your thoughts in terms of telling a story through food and who gets to tell that story. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Opening a oh, can of worms so in the last much. 60 yes. seconds. And in Charleston, ain't that special? <laughs> um, um, this can be possibly <laughs> edited out. <laughs> yeah, thank <laughs> <laughs> but oh, and did we just get cut out? <laughs> okay, I was about to say, was that no, we just literally got the comment? <laughs> Audio comment. I think I think two things. Okay, and we're we're now on to the great appropriation debate, and I will say this. Um, first of all, very sticky, very difficult very problematic I have and I'm going to talk from personal experience I have a degree in French from a French university I have spent as much time in France as probably anybody I um, I have eaten a lot in France and I will perhaps never be allowed to write a French cookbook. That's nuance. Mm. Um, And yes, I spoke French better than Patricia Wells when she started out. Okay? Ça m'étonne pas. Ça ça m'étonne pas non plus. (laughs) Donc, uh, I don't need to continue in French. I need to get on with it. But the thing is that um, appropriation is also about balkanization and therefore one must be careful. Mm. I think that respect is the word. And this is something that I said at a Smithsonian panel back in October. You know, everybody need to get to Aretha. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Right. Okay. It's not about what you do. It's about how you do it. 
food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. Mm -hmm. So to say, you can only write about yours and I can only write about mine is extraordinarily limiting. Agreed. However, if you write about mine without respect, if you step all over me running to get mine into print before I can, I got a problem with you and I'm coming for you. Amen. So we need to be aware of what we do and how we do it and we need to understand respect and we need to know when to back blankety blank off because sometimes people need to have time to get to theirs everybody isn't lucky enough to have a Judith Jones right uh, we all need to be able to figure out how to craft and work and identify and propose and be accepted for our stuff and I'm happy to share I'm pleased to share I like my stuff I want y'all to know about it but I don't want you to take it you know I mean there's a wonderful line in for colored girls somebody walked off with all of my stuff working real hard stealing like a junkie working overtime don't even know what he's stealing okay think about it don't run off with all of my stuff preach. On that note, I want to thank you, Dr. Jessica B. Harris and Sarah Franklin for being here and for having the wonderful long conversation we didn't get to have last night. But thank you. This was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I also just want to thank Clancy Miller once again for doing this special episode of Radio Cherry Bomb. Um, I'm Kat Johnson of Heritage Radio Network. This concludes our first day of coverage from Charleston Wine and Food Festival. Check us out again tomorrow um, at noon. We'll be back doing another five hours and once again on Sunday. And I want to also thank our sponsors once again for making this all possible, Springer Mountain Farms, Big Green Egg, Wisconsin Cheese, and the Julia Child Foundation. Um, we will be back tomorrow. Thanks so much for joining us. <laughs>